This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls of The Spectator and Paul Goodman of Conservative Home. Now, it's Tuesday afternoon, and Katie, where are we at currently on Suella Braverman? Waiting. Rashida is still considering rather to uh, launch an investigation by his ethics advisor into the incident uh, regarding the speeding ticket, the speed awareness course that never happened. And if he is to do that, we're still some way away from the Home Secretary uh, being punished, facing a disciplinary action, or, or, you know, the most extreme example of losing her job. It would just be the beginning of that process. So the idea... I, I, so, so I think ultimately we could know Suella Braverman's safe in her position for now um, if he decides not to have on these investigations or we start quite a long process. And I think what's interesting is Rishi Sunak on having met both with the Home Secretary and Sir Larry Magnus, who is the Independent Ethics Advisor. He has asked them both for some more information before he makes his mind up. Of course, the Prime Minister has now been accused of differing and being indecisive. Um, Number 10 would say he's actually got quite a few different things to do in his job as Prime Minister and they're not all about <laughs> So out of Braverman speeding, fine. Um, but, but it clearly is opening an option to the fact she could still face some type of process. I think what's interesting today was in the comments, um, there was an urgent question on the matter. And that comes after Home Office questions on Monday. So we've now seen Sarada Braverman in the chamber where she um, ultimately apologised for the speeding fine, defended herself. And today it was the Cabinet Office who were uh, you know, brought forward to answer questions on this. And you saw quite a show of support from Tory MP, something you've written about in Coffeehouse, James. And I think it was broadly MPs on the right of the party coming out to say, you know, this is smears, um, that this is all, you know, an attempt to undermine her. But also, I think, figures such as Charles Walker, mm. um, a, a backbench MP who is not number one in the Suella Braverman fan club, effectively saying on this um, she had the support, which I think highlights that if Rishi Sunak does decide to say this is going for an investigation, he will face a backlash, even if it then clears Suella Braverman from parts of the party, unless, of course, he uh, is able to point to something as a reason for why he is pressing ahead. Now, Paul, I mean, the main charge against uh, Suella is this Braverman seems to be about, you know, the ministerial code and whether she breached that. Uh, on Conservative Home today, there's a very good article written by one of your colleagues about you know the ministerial code and why it's a, a problem. Where do you stand on all this? And of course, we've also got the news today that Dominic Raab is standing down. He was obviously uh, brought up under that as well. So what is the, why is the ministerial code tripping over so many ministers and causing so much hassle for Rishi Sunak and his predecessors? First of all, Philip Braverman doesn't seem to have sought to have evaded a fine or taking the points or whatever. She doesn't seem to have avoided her responsibility. The question really is whether or not she is in breach of the ministerial code by ordering civil servants to take action. So her account is, I ask for advice, what shall I do? The account being put around by her opponents is, she said, can you help? And um, uh, crucially, you know, I think we will, um, uh, you know, get get to the truth, presumably, if it is all on email. Mm. And, you know, it may be that Rishi Sunak is 
and his team are looking at these emails. There is an element of waiting for Godot about all this. I think in the play, um, you know, the two main characters at one point meet a boy who comes. They say, is Godot coming tomorrow? He's coming tomorrow. Are you sure? I think, he, you know, Rishi Sunak is taking his time. But, I mean, to come to the code, um, obviously, it was seen there has to be some sort of ministerial code to give a kind of a rough guide to ministers about what to do and how to behave. The question really is whether in these present terms in which it's written, it altogether makes sense. And I'll give you two examples from when I last looked at it. One was the code said, uh, really, you know, you mustn't leak. Well, if that was taken seriously, right, uh, the investigators would be on the door of every senior politician every day of the week, and they're not. Right. So the code is not really taken seriously, even by the people who draw it up. And then next, I'm actually convinced it says in it somewhere, ministers shouldn't do anything unless they're guided by the public good. Really? What about the manifestos of what they've, they've been elected? What about their party interest on which they've been elected? What about the interests of their constituents that may conflict with the wider public good? I think a lot of the code is nonsense. And that intuitively, even though they've not read it, um, MPs, and perhaps now not only Conservative ones, realise that it can be used as a stick to beat ministers for the most minor of transgressions. If it really is the case, as a former Permanent Secretary of the Home Office suggested, that it's against the code, even for Home Secretary to ask for advice, right, uh, you might start to feel, what's the point of going into politics at all? And it's perhaps that sense that's you know driven what Dominic Raab has done today, which is you know standing down. He cited the pressures on his family, Katie. But uh, what do you make of this decision? Not a surprise in many ways. I don't think it's a great surprise in the sense that well, there's a few factors at play. First off, I think that you are getting a significant number of not just Tory MPs, but particularly Tory MPs deciding to stand down ahead of the next election. And um, I think part of that is what happens when the party is very behind in the polls. I think local elections probably added to that sense. Also, I think we can be at risk of sometimes overreading the sense of complete doom in the Tory party. For example, there are still plenty, I think I called them in a piece, young thrusters, um, wanting to be the Tory MPs of tomorrow. There's not been a drop in the number of people trying to get seats. So um, the, the job doesn't look so bad to everyone. And that there are um, more sticking around. But if you look at Dominic Raab, I mean, he's someone who has had a long ministerial career. Um, we're talking about the ministerial code. Um, and I think that creeping sense amongst definitely some Tory MPs at least that it can now be used on technicalities to draw people out. And there are ministers who they think that Dominic Raab's departure in, after the bullying investigation has now, um, they think, increased the chance of more complaints about serving ministers. Perhaps there's a debate for another day, but it does add, add to that sense. And I think Dominic Raab, it's hard to see what his career after having to quit on the grounds of bullying something he still disputes would be now perhaps you'd be offered a job at a later date but i don't think it would be the senior type of job he would want to do if you think about mm. the fact he's held a great office of the state he's been deputy prime minister is he returning to something at that level um and also then you get to his seat which is i think where the polls do come in um which is it is a key liberal democrat target seat um i think that you can see and tactical voting, which 
looking at the locals, like to be a big factor in the general election, um, could be used particularly on someone who is well known, such as Dominic Raab. And therefore, in his seat of Isha, you would have a situation where I think it looked pretty hard to hold on to. And the local election results, where the Liberal Democrats did very well in lots of Surrey seats, not just, you know, if you look at the um, Liberal Democrat target list in the top 40, you know, there were some that were pretty low down on that. I mean, Theresa May's seat of Maidenhead isn't even in the top 40, and yet the Liberal Democrats took their council. So they're not all going to transfer over. But what would worry you, you or Dominic Raab, looking at those results, is Michael Gove's seat even, you know, one of the safer Surrey seats, the Liberal Democrats took control of that council. So some of this is local. It doesn't always transfer. The Liberal Democrats tend to do much better in local elections and general elections with lots of different factors at play. But it means if you are one of those seats pretty high up on that 40, mm. <laughs> it does not bode well. Um, so I think all these things coming together mean that um, you know, he, he is, adds to that list. You already have figures such as Sajid Javid, for example, who's, who has said he's not going to seek re-election. So I think there is a specific type of politician, one who has been in cabinet for a very long time, who, um, you know, who are like, quite likely, if their career now seems to be over and they're not about to be leader, who think this is an opportune time to actually hit the exit door. Sure, Paul, what do you make of the Ralph case? Well, um, you and I both know a bit about Richmond upon Thames, um, <laughs> which is a, a very liberal Democrat seat. I feel it's rather like looking at one of those old films on a Western where you see the flames spread out on the map. So, you know, liberal democracy has got a grip in that bit of southwest London. Um, got out into Kingston and Twickenham, and when I was last in Dominic Raab's seat, I mean, he'd been there once, I took one look at it at kind of like, it smelled bad for the Tories. It feels not unlike that southwest area I'm trying to describe. So I think Dominic Raab's looked at that. Um, he's realised uh, he might not be re-elected. He's been Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, he's unlikely ever to go back to that um, uh, rank again. So he's decided to go. I think there's one other point here. This is a very interesting one which is that we now almost take it for granted that if someone has been a senior minister like Rab or Sajid Javid, who Katie mentioned, they will push off. Um, and this has become more so, really, since the Tony Blair era, really, where Blair walked out of the Commons on a high note and just left. Um, and it has profound implications for the way Parliament works because... Um, Katie's right, you get a generation of young hamsters who are willing to come in and go round the wheel. But what you begin to lack is the voice of the ex-minister who can get up from the back benches and say, hang on a moment, we tried that, it didn't work. Or better, we tried that, it didn't work, but it might have worked if we'd have done ABC. So you're losing your accumulated memory and your family experience, as it were, and your wisdom, regardless of party politics, regardless of whether you're Conservative or, or Labour. And you know, a Commons in which you have 650 um, bright, eager, bushy-tailed new MPs who are all representing their constituencies splendidly as constituency campaigners, that's fine in one sense, but you're losing your experience when the same sort of problems come round again and again. And just on that, I think we are heading to, after the next election, a House of Commons with a really young 
with a really high percentage of young MPs in terms of young intakes. You think about the number of Labour MPs we're expecting to come in, um, you know, when it comes to, uh, if, if the polls are even close to what's being suggested. You have um, Thangan Debener, who is the shadow leader of the House, is currently spending a lot of her time just working out how you train up what could be, you know, over a hundred new BMPs in terms of the rules, because we've seen with the 2019 intakes um, how, uh, particularly, I mean, worsened by the pandemic, but uh, how problematic it can be for a party in terms of all the things you need to do on whipping um, if you have people who, who don't really know the conventions. And I think this is going to probably be this uh, tenfold next time. Yeah, and finally, Paul, um, looking ahead, Thursday is going to be when the migration figures come out. We're expecting anywhere between 700,000 to more than a million uh, migrant arrivals last in the most recent year. Um, do you think perhaps that, you know, Number 10 is ready for the kind of scale of Tory unease or dissent over all of this? And how do you think the reaction is going to be among the parliamentary party? I mean, obviously, um, um, there's a qualification with, with the figures, which is that um, they've been swallowed by Ukrainian refugees, Hong Kong refugees, and, and so on, so it's important to put them in context. Nonetheless, it is a fact that um, part of the Brexit bargain, from the point of view of some people who voted for it and some people who masterminded the campaign, was that um, not only would you have control over immigration, but you would cut it down and reskill the British workforce. That was the sort of assumption. And, um, you know, all credit here to um, your editor. I mean, Fraser Nelson's made a big thing in recent weeks of how this just hasn't happened. And um, Boris Johnson pretty clearly went for this this character who's the hero of the Conservative Democratic Organisation and the Conservative right, ran the most liberal immigration policy in modern times. And I think there's a problem here for Rishi Sunak. When I interviewed Sunak for Conservative Home uh, a few weeks ago, I asked him specifically about legal immigration, and he pushed back and said, well, what most people are worried about is the boats. So I think there is a question mark about whether the Prime Minister really gets it. In other words, the concern of a lot of his party is activists and Conservative voters. And he's now, as it were, sort of paddling to catch up trying to make sense of his Home Secretary on the one hand, who wants more stringent control, and the interests of the Treasury and the Department of Education and the Department of Work and Pensions, who have um, a, a vested interest in the way the present system works. I think Paul's completely right in terms of where the Prime Minister's priorities are in this. You saw today the announcement about the dependence of students coming to the UK and tightening visa restrictions around that, which is one thing that you can do. But I think that will take some time to come into effect, because if you think about the academic year. Um, so what does the figure look like at the time of the next election? And therefore, I think it just adds to the importance that the Tories have something to point to on illegal immigration, on illegal migration. They need some progress on small boats because this is going to be something which does cause lots of unease in the party and beyond, potentially with voters. But therefore, you need to be able to say to say that you have achieved things in the other area because the worst case scenario for Rishi Zunag is if, uh, say, uh, you know, legal migration is at five hundred thousand by the time of the next election could be could actually be higher and there's also not a single fight that's gone to rwanda um there's no progress there in terms of science at that point what do you do i mean at that point i think the tory party would likely pile pressure to say we need to leave the echr but that is one where it's much harder to make any argument uh, positively about legal migration because it would just feel that things are very much not in control thank you katie thank you paul and thank you for listening to coffee house shots 